Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode 115, Jennifer Wimsat Pusateri. Should evidence law exclude apologies? Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Joining me on the podcast today is Jennifer Pusateri from GW Law. Now, Jennifer and I had a, a really wonderful conversation about her recent paper, It is Better to be Safe When Sorry, Advocating a Federal Rule of Evidence Excluding Apologies. Now, as the, the title suggests, Jennifer's paper focuses on apology evidence, or when in the courtroom apologies can be used to demonstrate fault, to demonstrate harm, to demonstrate negligence, to essentially advance a party's case. Intuitively, we might think that apology evidence is going to be quite probative. I certainly kind of took that surface-level approach. If one party is acknowledging the role that they played in a particular case and in, in causing some harm, of course, why would we not want that in the courtroom? Jennifer, though, provides a compelling and excellent case for excluding apologies from the courtroom. She looks at apologies from a societal, from a philosophical, from a theoretical perspective and demonstrates that the normatively best path forward here is to exclude apologies due to the fact that their utility in the courtroom is outweighed by the harm that they cause across a number of different metrics. Jennifer is an expert in the area. I loved this podcast. I loved my conversation with her, and I hope you enjoy it today as well. Jennifer, welcome to Excited Utterance. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So your paper, of course, focuses on apologies as evidence, which is a really cool topic. And before we get too technical, because it is such an interesting topic, I wanted to begin our conversation today just trying to get a sense of how you arrived at the topic. How did you choose to focus on apologies? Why was this kind of the emphasis of the piece? Yeah, so I spent a number of years in private practice before coming to academia, and I was really pretty shocked by how often it was that litigation continued long after it should have, really just because one party or the other was waiting for an apology. And I also found that litigation was often far more acrimonious than it needed to be because one party or the other was waiting for that sense of restoration of justice. And then often, even after a settlement, I would find that parties would feel that they hadn't really been restored to their prior place because they didn't get that apology. And so it started me on the path of thinking about apologies and looking to see what was out there in terms of literature on what role apologies play in our legal system. Any good lawyer discourages their client from apologizing because it's viewed as an acceptance of fault. But I ultimately found that that doesn't seem to be the case. So that's how I got to the topic. That's great. And because we're going to be talking so much about apologies today, and really the intersection of apologies and evidence law, I'm actually going to begin by taking us all the way back to the very beginning, because I want to think about apologies in the abstract for a second. And you mentioned that many of your former clients were upset that perhaps they didn't receive an apology. And I'm curious, just as a baseline matter, as a societal matter, why should we really value and encourage apologies as a normative good why should we orient, whether it's the legal system or even cultural norms, toward pursuing apologies? 
when thinking about what the good that apologies offer is, it is helpful to also think about the scenarios in which apologies tend to be offered. Because while talking about it in an abstract sense makes a lot of sense, it also makes sense for us to be thinking about these different scenarios in which apologies might be offered as a backdrop to that abstract discussion. So I'm thinking of things like one apologizes when their actions harm another. One might apologize when they see another suffering or disappointed. There's also a bunch of cultural norms and politeness norms around apologies. So sometimes apologies are linked to actions and sometimes they're unrelated to our conduct. Sometimes they're completely superfluous, right? I'm sorry for the weather. I'm sorry for the traffic. And what's consistent in all of those situations, the abstract point, is that regardless of the link to blameworthiness or conduct or not, there are benefits to both the individuals involved and to society from the apologies. And so now focusing back on your question, what are those benefits? There are benefits to injured parties, restoring sense of dignity and justice and power. So I step on your toe and maybe your toe hurts, but you also feel like, man, she stepped on my toe. And so apologizing restores that sense of you're not a person to be harmed. You're an equal member of society who deserves not to be harmed. Apologies also benefit the speaker. It affirms their self-worth. It affirms their place in the society and their sense of morality. Systems, moral, ethical, and religious systems for all eternity have used apologies as a way of signaling that an individual is part of the moral fabric of the society. And we see that in the evidence as it relates to benefits to apologizers. And then we also see benefits to society by decreasing aggression, decreasing revenge, decreasing retribution and recidivism. Some of these benefits I just talked about take the form of concrete psychological and physical benefits. So we see a reduction in social anxiety and depression, improved self-image, improved cardiovascular health and immune responses for both those who receive apologies and those who give apologies. There are also some really concrete pro-social benefits like promoting civility, reducing retribution, recidivism. And then there are the symbolic benefits that I talked about, restored sense of justice and the like. And then in addition to all those abstract benefits, when we think in the legal context, we also get benefits in terms of litigation efficiencies, which I imagine we'll talk about later. Yes, please. And I will say that this is all incredibly compelling to me in particular, because I am someone who will apologize for everything, even if I have the most tangential effect. You mentioned the weather, like I totally get that, right? So it is a very interesting and fascinating account. And I want to kind of drill down into some of those items that you mentioned. So the first benefit from apologies that caught my ear just now was you mentioning that apologies can actually help redress harms or remedy harms in certain contexts. So build out that aspect of apologies for us. Yeah, absolutely. So apologies are typically viewed as redressing what we might call symbolic harms. So these are harms to dignity and emotional injury that result from the very act of being harmed by another. So in the stepped on your toe example, it's the harm that arises from the fact of being harmed. It's the harm to your dignity of having your toe hurt. So when an individual has been harmed, then apology serves the function of both acknowledging that harm and then restoring a sense of justice and equilibrium to the parties within the system. Now, this type of harm, this symbolic harm, is not typically the kind of harm that's redressed in our American legal system. So the tort system largely addresses physical harms, economic harms, financial harms. The criminal system addresses harms by an individual for failing to follow the rules of the society, but neither of those systems are particularly concerned with redressing dignity harms or symbolic harms. Under both of these systems, the compensation for emotional harm is pretty rare and limited. Damages are typically parasitic 
to physical or economic damages. When there are standalone torts like IIED or NIED, they're limited in scope and difficult to prove. So in other words, when our system does address these dignity harms, these emotional harms, it does so when there are specific quantifiable limited emotional harms, not the just general emotional harm, symbolic harm that results from being harmed. But yet, as I mentioned in the beginning, individuals feel these insults, they feel these harms to dignity, and they seek a restoration of justice, they seek a restoration of their power. And this is where apologies bridge the gap between what the legal system does and what individuals expect. Now, I'm sure the law and econ scholars who are listening had their ears perk up as well, because uh, you also mentioned that apologies can help actually improve litigation efficiency. So how does that dynamic actually play out? Yeah, so apologies provide litigation efficiencies primarily in the form of more and faster settlements and in decreased numbers of cases being filed in the first place. And this is actually an area where a lot of the apology scholarship is focused. And the data here comes from primarily two really interesting places. The first is Jennifer Robinolt's empirical work on apologies. And one of her studies, she does this really interesting thing where she assigns individuals to be the victim and then gives them a settlement offer and evaluates their willingness to accept the settlement offer, depending on whether the offer is accompanied by no apology, what we might call a partial apology and a full apology. So to define those terms a little bit, a full apology is what we think of as both a self-critical statement and an expression of sympathy or empathy. So I'm sorry, I screwed up. I'm sorry you're injured. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry I made a huge mistake. Those are all full apologies. A partial apology is just the expression of sympathy or empathy without the self-critical piece. So I'm sorry you're not feeling well. I'm sorry you're upset by that. I'm sorry you're hurt. And what's really interesting in Robinolt's work is that she found that individuals when they received a full apology were much more likely to accept a settlement offer. Whereas individuals, when they see the partial apologies, it seemed to create confusion. So she found that in 52% of the cases with no apology, an individual would either definitely or probably accept the offer. With a full apology, that number rose to 73%, but with a partial apology, it declined to 35% and 40% of people in the partial apology scenario remained undecided as to which course to take. They didn't know whether to be inclined to accept the settlement or inclined to reject the settlement. So that's one category of data that provides information about likelihood of apology impacting litigation efficiencies, impacting settlement. So the other set of data that really supports this notion that apologies increase litigation efficiencies comes from the University of Michigan Health System. And the University of Michigan Health System adopted a program requiring healthcare professionals to apologize when an individual was injured in the health system. And what they found was that the per case payments decreased by about 47% and the settlement time decreased from about 20 months to about six months after the program was introduced. So both the Robinhold empirical work and the University of Michigan Health System data illustrate well that apologies have a great potential to provide litigation efficiencies, especially in the case of full apologies. That is fascinating information, some fascinating studies there. And I think that this is a really great background for us now as we pull this discussion into the world of evidence, if you will. So generally stated, how are apologies typically treated under the federal rules of evidence? Are they excluded? Are they admitted? What's the typical treatment? 
So the federal rules of evidence don't deal explicitly with apologies. So right now, they're not dealt with as a separate category of, of evidence. Instead, they're governed by the usual 401, 403 evaluation of relevance and whether the probative value of the apology is substantially outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice from its admission. What this means in practice is that apologies are generally admitted because courts, like society, like people, tend to assume, I would argue wrongly, that apologies, at least full apologies, are probative of fault. So because we assume that they are probative of fault, they are generally admitted under the current rules. And is the treatment any different under state evidentiary codes, perhaps? I know that for the most part, state evidentiary codes largely mirror the federal rules of evidence, but some do take different paths with respect to different types of evidence. I'm curious if some states at least have taken a different approach to apologies. So they have actually, and the state evidentiary code question is really interesting because there's a whole patchwork of state protections. Many states exclude at least some form of apologies, but no state offers general protection for full apologies. So what does this look like? A number of states offer protection for partial apologies. So they would offer protection for expressions of sympathy or benevolence without offering any protection for statements of remorse or guilt or self-criticism. A few states offer protection for full apologies, but limit that protection to the medical malpractice setting. So they would exclude full apologies made by doctors, but wouldn't exclude a full apology made by someone involved in a car accident, for argument's sake. So ultimately, there is some protection at the state level, but it's really inconsistent, and none of them protect full apologies generally. So then let's turn this conversation in a normative direction if we can. I'm curious, Jennifer, what you would do about apology evidence. What's the optimal evidentiary treatment in your mind for this type of evidence? Yeah, so I think that apologies need better protections, and I think they need protections in the form of a federal rule of evidence that excludes apologies. As we discussed, apologies provide a wealth of benefits to the injured party, to the speaker, and to society. They provide litigation efficiencies, and key to this analysis they aren't necessarily probative of fault or blameworthiness. So that makes apologies really similar to other categories of evidence that are excluded under the rules. Categories that have both a societal benefit and questionable probative value. So I'm thinking here of things like subsequent remedial measures, which the drafters of the Federal Rules of Evidence noted could be undertaken as a result of a conclusion about fault, but they could also be undertaken just simply to avoid future accidents. Similarly, offers to pay medical expenses that have an obvious benefit to society, benefits to the injured party, and could be undertaken for a reason that it has something to do with fault or doesn't have anything to do with fault. And then finally, the third similar category is settlement discussion. So one may want to settle because they think they're at fault, or one may want to settle because they want peace or want to be done with the matter. And all of those things are very similar to the apology context where we find both these benefits and this questionable probative value. And ultimately, the reason that it makes the most sense to offer this protection in the form of a federal rule is because, as you said, the federal rules are often the model for the state rules of evidence. And more importantly, when what we're trying to accomplish is a cultural shift in the way that apologies are given and received in society in terms of you know, no longer discouraging apologies when there's a situation where litigation might arise, you don't want people to have to stop and check their map and their rules of evidence before they decide to make an apology. In fact, that completely undermines what we're going for here if we're looking for full self-critical stance and you know, statements of sympathy and empathy, the, the vulnerable off-the-cuff apologies that are most beneficial to parties. So I want to play devil's advocate here for a second, because you mentioned the probative value of apologies. I'm curious, 
aren't there going to be some context though where apologies are not just fairly probative but substantially probative perhaps that someone did engage in some sort of harm and so is that something that we should be worried about losing in the courtroom if we do have a very probative apology that a categorical bar would cause us to lose that kind of essential piece of evidence so i think the answer is no because of three distinct kinds of research and each of these three categories of research really confirm that apologies aren't probative of fault the way that we might assume that apologies are probative of fault. So these categories are social and cultural research, psychological research, and philosophical research. So ultimately, apologies in the absence of legal fault, so apologies that are not probative of fault, are culturally common, they're psychologically expected, and they're philosophically warranted. So let me unpack that a bit. So first thinking about how they're culturally common. The prevalence of superfluous apologies, so apologies that really, for lack of a better description, offer no link to reality, no link to blameworthiness at all, or no link to the individual's actions, the individual's conduct. So I'm sorry about the weather. I'm sorry about the traffic. I'm sorry your train is delayed. Those are superfluous apologies. The prevalence of those and the cultural differences in the frequency of giving apologies in the form of apologies first confirm that apologies aren't necessarily good evidence of blameworthiness. So there's some interesting studies that find that, number one, we engage in a lot of superfluous apologies as a society. And number two, there are benefits to those superfluous apologies, regardless of whether there's blameworthiness. And in fact, there are more benefits in terms of likability of the apologizer when the apology is superfluous. So an apology for the weather is more beneficial than an apology for interrupting someone for argument's sake. Second, the propensity of some groups to apologize at dramatically higher rates and with more at fault language really illustrates the lack of probative value here. So the most common illustration in like pop culture that one might be familiar with is this notion that women as a gender apologize far more frequently and using more at fault words than men do. And it can't be that women as a gender are more blameworthy. So there has to be something there that's going on that doesn't just have to do with fault. We also know that individuals from certain cultural backgrounds apologize more frequently than others. And in research studies, at least, individuals of lower status apologize more frequently and using more at fault words than individuals of higher status. So from a cultural perspective, apologies aren't necessarily linked to guilt or blameworthiness. The delinking of apology from blameworthiness also makes sense from a psychological perspective. And this is because feelings of guilt and resulting apologies frequently occur in the absence of blameworthiness. So we expect, again, going back to this, what do we expect and why are apologies admitted in the first place? We expect that apologies follow guilt and guilt follows blameworthiness. But social science confirms that it's just not that simple, that our beliefs about blameworthiness, guilt, and apologies don't actually align with reality. That guilt is often felt in the absence of blameworthiness, and apologies are often provided in the absence of guilt. So by way of example, social science research confirms that we feel guilt and might offer a subsequent apology in a lot of circumstances that really have nothing to do with blameworthiness. So we apologize when we observe others suffer from an undesirable circumstance. So a good example of that is if a friend loses a job, then we might feel guilt about that and apologize. We apologize and feel guilt when we suffer less or benefit more than others. So good examples of this are situations involving survivor's guilt, or if I get a raise and my coworker doesn't get a raise. I might feel guilt about that and ultimately apologize. Individuals feel guilt and apologize when they hurt or disappoint another. So this might be 
individual chooses a different college than their parents want them to choose. They disappoint their parents and feel guilt and apologize. That we also feel guilt and apologize when another is clearly to blame for their negative outcome. So in the world of academia, this might be a situation where you feel guilt for assigning a low grade to a student who performed really poorly. You might nonetheless feel guilt and feel the need to apologize, even if you wouldn't actually apologize, despite the fact that it's the student's own actions that led to their low grade. And then related to these, this sense of guilt and propensity to apologize is the propensity to engage in what we call counterfactuals. So counterfactuals are our brains trying to figure out what we could have done differently, what happened, what caused a negative outcome. And we engage in counterfactuals anytime we have a negative outcome. And social science research tells us that certain aspects of the counterfactuals make us more likely to conclude that a particular thing was the cause. So when our own actions are involved, we're more likely to conclude that our own actions were the cause. When something unusual happened, so I took a different road home and I got involved in a car accident, I'm more likely to blame the unusual action. I'm more likely to blame the fact that I took a different road home. And then the amount of perceived control. If something seems really outside the control of humans, then we're less likely to perceive it as the cause of the negative outcome than things that are more in our control. So let me walk through an example, sort of take it from that abstract level down to something that we might understand. So imagine that you are getting into your car and it's a cold morning and your neighbor's cat has crawled up underneath your car during the night and you get ready to go to work to the detriment of the cat. And in that situation, you would feel awful, right? And you would feel more awful than others around you because you were actually involved in the harm, which I'll talk about in a minute in terms of the philosophical approach. You would probably apologize. In society, we would expect you to apologize. You might engage in counterfactuals related to the harm that befell the cat. And your level of guilt would change based on the way that you work through those counterfactuals. So if it was your cat, you would view yourself as having more control. You would probably feel more guilt. If you had less control, if the weather impacted it, it was a particularly cold day, and that's what caused the cat to come near the car, then you would feel less guilt and less sense of attribution for the injury to the cat. If you could have done something different, if you normally keep your garage door closed and this day you opened it, if it was an unusual circumstance, you might feel more guilt and more sense of attribution based on your use of counterfactuals. And all of this, these counterfactuals and the guilt that comes from counterfactuals and social science, psychological evidence related to this is really magnified when we think about using apologies based on these counterfactuals, based on these feelings of guilt as probative evidence of fault. We effectively substitute the actor's counterfactual thinking and conclusions about but-for causation for the conclusions of the ultimate fact finder there. So from a psychological perspective, these feelings of guilt, these resulting apologies are further delinked. In addition to the cultural information, cultural evidence, the psychological evidence confirms that apologies aren't always probative of fault. And then finally, from a philosophical perspective too, apologies are warranted regardless of blameworthiness when an actor's conduct is involved in a negative outcome. So as humans, we are by our very nature as moral actors engaged in the act of avoiding harm to others. And anytime we're actively engaged in avoiding an outcome, but our actions lead to that outcome anyway, a self-critical stance is appropriate and regret and when another is involved, a subsequent apology is appropriate. So what, what does that mean in concrete terms? 
want. So anytime we work hard at something and the outcome isn't what we intend, we take a self-critical stance. So if we work really, really hard to win a basketball game, but we miss a shot, then a self-critical stance is appropriate. If we work really, really hard to do well on an exam, but do poorly, a self-critical stance is appropriate. And apologies, of course, follow self-critical stance. And this is all related to the concept of agent regret. From a philosophical perspective, when an individual's own actions are involved in harm, then the agent takes an even more self-critical stance. So in the cat example, the driver of the car is going to feel more agent regret, that's going to feel more guilt than a bystander might. And from a philosophical perspective, that's appropriate because we're trying to avoid harm. We're moral agents trying to avoid harm. When our actions nonetheless are related to harm, then we have that self-critical stance and it's appropriate to engage in an apology that incorporates that self-critical stance. So things like, I'm sorry, I wish I hadn't done that, I messed up, I made a mistake. From a philosophical perspective, are as appropriate in these blameless examples as they are in the blameworthy examples. So then the philosophical perspectives further delinks this legal and moral blameworthiness from the self-critical stance and from apologies. So ultimately you have some cultural evidence that confirms that apologies happen frequently in situations that are unrelated to fault. From a psychological perspective, you have an explanation for why those apologies are expected in situations that are unrelated to fault. And then from a philosophical perspective, we have further illustration of why it's appropriate to have apologies in the absence of fault. So all of these things lead to the conclusion, in my mind, that apologies are not necessarily probative of fault and in fact are so unlikely to be probative of fault that it makes sense from a policy perspective to exclude them under the federal rules of evidence. Well, Jennifer, I have to say that that is an incredibly compelling conclusion. I found your paper so well done and I only have one final question for you and that is what's next for the literature here. Is there any kind of lingering issue that you think a future piece could address or explore when it comes to apologies? Yeah, so I think one of the things that I found most interesting in my research is this notion that power and status seems to impact the rate and frequency of apologies. And I think that has some really interesting intersections with criminal law in particular. And thinking about some of the other situations in which we find bias based on socioeconomic status or other status. And I'd really like to see some empirical work on whether that plays out outside the lab, whether... It is the case that individuals are more likely to apologize and to use more at-fault words when they are of a lower status than others. And if so, what the impact that has on the other aspects of our legal system. Well, Jennifer, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I love this paper. I encourage everyone to go read it. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. What a great and fascinating conversation I was able to have with Jennifer. I'll admit, uh, candidly, that I was perhaps skeptical coming into the conversation that apology evidence should be categorically or even partially barred from the courtroom. To my mind, I think apologies are just going to be too probative. But Jennifer did an excellent job waylaying my concerns, demonstrating from a philosophical perspective, a theoretical perspective, a societal perspective, that we would be better off excluding apology evidence from the courtroom. Now, something that really caught my ear, though, as I was talking with Jennifer, is her comparison or, or her drawing an analogy to existing specialized relevance rules. 
we already categorically exclude certain types of evidence when used for certain purposes to foster some sort of public policy good. Of course, everyone knows Rule 407, excluding subsequent remedial measures when used to prove negligence because we don't want uh, individuals to kind of have a reluctance to remedy dangerous conditions out of some sort of fear that that action might be used against them later on in court. So too does Rule 408 protect settlement negotiations. Rule 410 protects plea negotiations. Rule 409 protects offers to pay medical expenses. Rule 411 protects liability insurance. But as I think about those specialized relevance rules, I'll admit that I've always been kind of puzzled by them. Not from the standpoint that there's anything wrong with the current five primary specialized relevance rules that we have, but just from the standpoint of why only five? Why do the federal rules of evidence protect subsequent remedial measures, liability insurance, offers to pay medical expenses to foster some public policy good, but then fail to take a similar approach for other types of evidence, the exclusion of which would also foster some sort of normative benefit. For example, consider rap lyric evidence, something of a hot topic in evidence law. Why is that not the focus of a specialized relevance rule to serve a public policy good, excluding rap lyrics, that is? Why do we protect offers to pay medical expenses, but not offers to call for medical help? It's just curious to me that we've chosen to protect these substantive policy goods, whether it's remedying dangerous conditions or, or liability insurance or what have you, but we don't ever take a step back and think about what should be added or perhaps removed from that list. Maybe, though, Jennifer's paper could be the catalyst, a first step in thinking about renewing the specialized relevance rules. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The producer of Excited Utterance is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host today, Alex Nunn, and I do hope you'll join us next time when we explore another piece in the world of evidence and proof.